This is the second chapter, Influent. Debt followed when Jella Jackson around like a bad smell now that she had, was laid off from her art teacher job at Pattengill Elementary School. A little work here and there kept the debt from stinking up the room, but the clothes were getting thin and her car was barely casting a shadow. She sat in the cool at Alvin's Deli with the other MFAs, Masters of Fine Arts, and discussed their fate. Amongst the general grumbling and threats of suicide, someone mentioned that the city of Detroit was hiring and that they were looking for women. The pay was supposed to be good, but you had to know your way around tools pretty well. Anyway, it was a thought that drifted in and out the door down Cass Avenue, then up Duffield and Woodward where it hung out at the pawn shop on Detroit's Main Street. There the thought waited for her after she pawned her favorite Gibson and stepped from the bus from the store to stare towards downtown. The Woodward bus was pulling up. She stepped on and got off at the stop in front of the city county building. The job was posted in the first floor lobby. She went upstairs, got the application, filled it out, came back downstairs, and caught the bus back to her car. Two months later, she sat in a hallway, waiting for her interview, feeling depressed. You can't possibly be going to the interview like that, wailed her friend lady that morning. You are not going out to a business meeting. Take that great stuff off. This is the city of Detroit, and looking like you've just come from a funeral just isn't going to cut it. You have to make an impression. You're supposed to look sharp. Lady dragged Wendella to her own well-appointed closet and began rearranging her while she stood there, musing like the pale maiden betrothed to the volcano. Seven years of college, and she was trying to go to a shit plant to dance with a shovel. This was nothing to get dressed up for. Lady, do I need money this bad? Lady paused from her dresser's frenzy. Well, the way I figure it, in about two months, you may as well go and live in the pawn shop because practically everything you own is going to be down there. You call the pawnbroker Stevie. Wendella, you on a first-name basis with him. Look, take this job till you can get straight, girl. You, you keep right on looking. And the first good thing you find, you're out of there, okay? She sagged a little bit more. Okay, woman, do your worst. Lady put on a few more touches and stepped back for a look. This is a shame. Wendella snapped out of her funk with a hint of worry in her voice. What, lady, what? Lady pulled her to the mirror and said, Will you look at this? Wendella looked into the mirror. She didn't look just good. She was sparkling. Every man's sweet white chocolate dream. This just isn't right, said Lady. Here you are, a beer-swilling, trash-talking, hard-living heifer, and you got the nerve to clean up like this. There she stood. Long brown hair swirled about her shoulders, framing her delicate features, makeup on every part of her you could see, and a dress that hinted at everything you couldn't. Wendella Jackson, 26-year-old, down-and-out former track rat and MFA, was now a fresh-faced 
20-year-old, sleek and striking with a hint of innocence. I look like a high-class call girl. Well, lady said, you know what they say about getting a job. You know what they want. You're just dicking on the price. It's going to be all right. You, you wait and see. Lady paused. Something was wrong. Then she saw Wendella's shoes. What the hell are those? She said, pointing down at her comfortable loafers. You're not auditioning for our Miss Brooks. Take those damn things off. Just give them to me. And let me drive a stake through their souls. She couldn't afford parking, so she parked out near the freeway and started walking to the city county building down Woodward. A door nailed a man walking into the Palms Theater when he looked back at her. A bus driver sat slack jawed while his sandwich dripped mustard down the front of his shirt. At first, the glances were uncomfortable, but she was a horsewoman. She had accustomed herself to maneuvering powerful beasts. It always thrilled her when she felt the strength and grace of a horse moving under her body. God, in his infinite wisdom, had given her national velvet in the middle of downtown Detroit, and she sure as hell was going to put it through its paces. Besides that, it wasn't hers. As soon as she got back home, it was going down the drain or onto a hook in Lady's Closet. By the time she reached the city-county building, she had done more damage than the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It was then that she felt her old despair as she took the elevator up to the interview rooms. Now the looks and smiles just bounced off of her. She felt uneasy with the sense that she was giving in and that sitting there, sitting here, was in some way an act of betrayal to all the striving she had ever done. This is crazy, she thought. I'm just up like God's gift to mankind so I can prove that I can handle crap. I've been taking crap all my life. She wanted to pull her hair back up, wipe the paint off her face, and get into some comfortable clothes. She, had she been Superman, this is the point where she would have leaped into a telephone booth and emerged as her alter ego. But the clerk was calling her name and making his way towards her. Even Superman would have to gut it out blue tights and all. Just pull yourself together, she thought. Do this and get the hell out of here. She was taken to an office where a small black man sat. He stood up, shook her hand, and introduced himself as John Polk from the Detroit Wastewater Treatment Plant. When Delish took his hand and demurely sat in her chair and quietly answered questions. The interviewer from the plant probed her past with guiding questions that allowed him to elicit answers from her that proved she was qualified for the job. She did nothing but follow his lead. Anything he needed to know, she would tell him just to get it over with. Finally, John Polk stood and thanked her for coming and assured her that the interview had gone well and that more than likely he would probably be seeing her at the plant. Wendella thanked him and drifted from the room to the nearest lavatory, where she washed her face, pulled back her hair, put on tennis shoes. From a bag, she pulled a small airline whiskey bottle and downed it while looking in the mirror. Fuck it, she said. Just fuck this shit. That afternoon, Polk stood in front of the mirror in his office and smiled. It had been a very successful day. He had carefully ensured the promotions of those he wished to see move up and stopped those 
whom he had not. This system was made for him. The test for advancement only counted for 60% of the grade. The other 40% had to be gleaned through the personal interview, which he gave, and it took 70% to pass. Wastewater treatment was not about test taking, and it took the city bureaucracy a while to figure that out. No more educated idiots with bullshit degrees and bogus certificates. Plus, the deserving people in Glitter City now had a chance to move up even if they had no particular education and could only dredge 30% out of the test. He was there to ensure that. Well, at least he was there to ensure the chance. This was not, however, a regular chance. This was a glitter city chance. Something akin to a prayer's chance in hell, but with the brimstone replaced by caca. No one normal or as high place knew more arcane information about the plant than Polk. Furthermore, the questions he asked and their relevance to the jobs were beyond the abilities of the average civil servant to question. He had it all his own way. The hopefuls from the plant dutifully trooped in front of him one by one. He asked questions about the bubbler system on the secondary reactors to those who had never been anywhere but in the vacuum filters, then asked someone from secondary about the recirculation air temperatures on an incinerator. His favorite question, and the one that put him high in the pantheon of glitter city villains and earned him the moniker Prince of Darkness, was what are the Davis Gates? It had taken him weeks to come up with this one. There was always some smart ass who just seemed to know everything, but no one, no one could know the answer to this one. Even the people who work with the Davis Gates wouldn't know the answer because no one but he and some long dead retirees knew they had once been called that. Even after the question was widely circulated in the plant, no one could come up with the answer. It had become the riddle of the Sphinx. Polk loved to look at their faces as they waited for the dreaded question. If they were just on the line, he would throw them easy questions about where they worked and let them get close to passing. Then, bang, the Davis gates and they sank faster than the Titanic. If they were sharper, he would bear down on them and push them right to the line of passing or failing, then deliver his coup de grace. Some would be tempted to compare John Polk to the Marquis de Sade. This would be unfair, since the Marquis did not really have the power to change a person's life in 20 minutes. Polk was a professional. The Marquis was a gifted amateur. Not all suffered, however. Someone had to run the plant, and enough got through to keep the place going. A case in point was Wendella Jackson. Many people would have looked past her qualifications. She had an MFA, had taught children, had worked on horse tracks all her life. He had looked into those wide set brown eyes with that hair flowing about her face and saw potential. He knew from her lithe and taut body that she could handle the work and her docile attitude almost guaranteed that she would be amenable to training. No, it was not a bad afternoon at all for John Polk. He studied himself in the mirror, looking for the look. 
He could not describe it, but he knew when he had it. This look was what he always wanted. It said that he was powerful and was someone who must be taken into account. None of that flashy, trashy nigga stuff, but a clean, pared-down look. Gray jacket, striped tie, and black slacks with no more ornamentation than a simple wedding ring. He stared and then smiled. The smile spread across his face. That was the final touch. I don't know. That smile, poet commented to Moses as Pope walked past him in the lunchroom. Ever notice that you don't smile back at that man? It ain't a normal type of smile. It's got no warmth. Moses looked at him casually. It's not a smile, poet. You ever seen a baboon smile? That ain't a smile either. It's a primate threat display. See, animals are about the only animals that show their teeth. That, see, humans are about the only animals that show their teeth as a sign of friendliness. It works only, however, with other humans. A dog shows his teeth, and we back away. It's not about friendship. Built into all humans is this other understanding of teeth. When Pokes walks by and flashes his pearly whites, it's the non-human threat display we see. You saying that Pokes not human? Sure, said Moses. Think about it. He constantly defends territory and is always trying to herd all the females around. What you got here, my friend, is the naked ape, pure and unadorned. So, He's not human, and he walks amongst us. Yep. Can he be killed? Don't know. Roosevelt sat at the head of a long table going over and signing the records for his shift. He peeked up from his work and saw Polk standing in the outer office talking with Stackhouse and quickly ducked his head back into his work. He wanted nothing to do with that group. Stackhouse was his head of solace, but that made no difference. He was Polk's boy, and he knew that he was Polk's boy. He didn't flaunt it to Roosevelt. He was too smooth for that, but he had just that hint of arrogance to his speech and confidence in his manner that made you understand there was someone up there that had his back. For Roosevelt, this meant he gave him a lot of room to maneuver. He looked out from his papers and watched them talk. T-Rex and his growing son already showing some of those terrible incisors that his daddy was so famous for using. He scooted deeper into his papers, trying to ignore the incisors outside his door. They were the top of the food chain and a pretty prehistoric one at that. Flesh-rending, blood-lusting predators easily capable of killing for fun. Not that he was... The sheep banged helplessly on the prairie. He had his strengths, but he was a mammal, a warm-blooded thing, and next to their boat, comparatively small. It allowed him to move between the big reptiles and get the pickings they left. More coyote than wolf, he settled into the existence of a minor predator with a wary eye on the big fellas. The top of the food chain in Glitter City was not even a thought for him. He intended to last. All that roaring, strutting, and bloodletting just attracted attention and more large carnivores. Yeah, Polk was big now, but there had been others before him, and he had helped pick their bones clean. When the time came, 
he would gather at the field of battle with fork, spoon, and napkin and take what was left to poke. But now he would do for the new poke what he had done for the old, stay out of his way and do his bidding when necessary. Big carnivores like Pope needed little ones like him because all they could do was rend and rend and scare the hell out of people. Someone had to do the real work, and no T-Rex was going to trust another T-Rex. No one much respected or feared him, but he would be around, and for a coyote, that ain't bad. Pope came into the office. Roosevelt stopped working and looked up attentively. You got some new people coming, Rose? And I wanted to talk to you about personnel. Roosevelt inwardly sighed. No more bullshit. Sure, you you know I can always use people. It it would sure cut the hell back on all this overtime. Pope showed him the list and suggested some possible changes. Um, aren't you short of some people in consideration? Maybe this girl, when Della Jackson might work out there. A light went on in his head. That was what the old bull wanted. He was trying to stock his harem. Women weren't generally sent to the second floor in incineration. That was cavemen with 20-foot iron tools, 1,500-degree temperatures pouring out of a furnace and rock-like slag to be busted. There were women who could and did work incineration, but it was rare and almost never done for a new hire, unless, of course, they were pretty and not spoken for. A few months busting slag and they became real receptive to rescue and the types of comforts a guy like Pope could offer. Okay, John, uh, if you think that'll work out, it's fine with me. Do you know what's, you know, that's where Poe is. They both smile, T-Rex and Coyote. Lord knows, Poet was on shaky enough ground the last few months. Willie's partner on the second floor had once again been invited back to drug rehab after an unfortunate near overdose in the basement of Complex 2. In the interim, Poet had a succession of people on overtime who worked with him. It wasn't that they were bad workers. No one could hardly be as bad as Willie, who spent inordinate amounts of time nodding in front of the furnace. But he knew Willie. He could get things done knowing almost precisely what Willie would or could not be doing at the time. Now without his partner, he was subject to little frustrations here and there, and he was getting antsy.